Good morning. If you will find your places, please. Thank you again for uh, coming. This is our fourth of uh, five sessions. So next week will be our last time uh, together. And I'm grateful always that uh, many of you make your way here each Thursday and to uh, share in this time. Now that the election is over, I want to share a, a great little piece which Lenore and I received and which I hope will bring a smile to your face. You wouldn't know this person uh, who is being referred to, but she's a delightful woman. And uh, this little piece is entitled, Aunt Anne Throws Her Hat in the Ring. It's dated November 2. As a write-in candidate, Democrats and Republicans agree that Anne Denoyer Demog, she lives in Kalamazoo, by the way, is a winner. She has deep faith and high values instilled by her strong Christian upbringing. While Romney was living the life of Riley in Detroit and Obama frolicked in the waves in Hawaii, Andy Neuer worked in the salary fields and learned the value of a penny. She's tough on economy, keeping careful watch over her personal budget, never overspending. She cares about the environment, creating a park-like atmosphere around her home. She's an advocate for peace in the home and in the world and the peace that passes all understanding. She is pro-life, a lover of babies and children, especially Sarah, Julia, and Cade. She has a strong allegiance to Michigan and the automobile industry. Her family owns a very large dealership in Kalamazoo, by the way. She has a strong allegiance to Michigan and the automobile industry. She's more than a one-party candidate. She'll reach across the aisle and have many parties serving coffee and compassion to all. And in our demag handles life with optimism, prayers, and abiding faith. And the only bridge she's interested in building is the bridge to heaven. If you might not know, but Michigan just had a proposal to build a new bridge between Detroit and Canada. And the only bridge she's interested in is building the bridge to heaven. Join us in supporting a winner, Anne Demog, a woman with years of experience, 95 of them. She's a candidate we can trust. Political pundits speculate that her running mate will be another woman of experience, Mary Tenbrink, aged 98. <laughs> Vote for Anne Demog, and the bottom line says, I'm Anne Demog, and I approve this message. <laughs> Isn't that good? <laughs> Need a few more people like that. And she is an absolutely delightful, delightful lady. And um, you would love to, to know her and, uh, and get to know her as well. Well, if you have been with us during this time, I think you're keeping in mind that the thrust of this series is the amazing grace of God. And our thrust has been twofold. One is to include a biblical study of the concept or the truth or the theology of the grace of God. 
And then we've also been doing some readings from Dr. Smead's book entitled Shame and Grace. And I want to begin this morning by reading from Dr. Smead's part of the outline which you received last week and which I very rarely or barely referred to. But some of that outline is a part of the passages that I want to read this morning. Um, if you have read any part of the book at all, or if, if you've been with me in these sessions, you know that Smeeds spends a great deal of time describing what he means by the concept of shame. But now, at the sort of the middle of the book, he makes a turn. And in chapter 13, uh, the, the, the chapter is entitled, The Beginning of Our Healing. And I want to read some major sections of this book because, again, I think it's very homey, not only, but they, he also portrays truth uh, through storytelling. And this is how he begins in this, this chapter by saying the beginning of our healing. And some of you who have the hardcover book, it's page 107. Grace is the beginning of our healing because it offers the one thing we need most, that is, to be accepted without regard to whether we are acceptable. Grace stands for gift. It is the gift of being accepted before we become acceptable. Before we go on, I must explain that grace is not some sort of cosmic feather bed we can all flop into when we feel rather heavy. Grace is really shorthand for God, who, to the amazement of any shamed person, is amazingly gracious. I will reduce the challenge somewhat by speaking only of our experience of grace, not about the theories or doctrines of atonement, not even about what God had to suffer in order to get grace to us, or what must, one must do to believe in order to get it. To put it crudely, I will not discuss the price of admission. I shall only try to describe what we experience once we get inside. Most people who experience the grace of God at all experience it uh, on one or more of four levels. And if you have the sheet from last week, which was the goldenrod sheet, I included these four levels of experiencing God's grace. First, we experience, <clears throat> excuse me, we experience grace as pardon. That is, we are forgiven for wrongs we have done. Pardoning grace is the answer to our guilt. We also experience Two, grace as acceptance. We are reunited with God and our true selves, accepted, cradled, held, affirmed, and loved. Accepting grace is the answer to shame. Thirdly, we experience grace as power. It provides a spiritual energy to shed the heaviness of shame and in the lightness of grace, move toward the true self God means us to be. And four, we experience grace as gratitude. It gives us a sense for the gift of life, a sense of wonder and sometimes elation at the lavish 
generosity of God. The surest cure for the feeling of being an unacceptable person is the discovery that we are accepted by the grace of one whose acceptance of us matters the most. We are ready for grace when we are bone-tired of our struggle to be worthy and acceptable, after we have tried too long to earn the approval of everyone important to us, we are ready for grace. When we are tired of trying to be the person somebody sometime convinced us we had to be, we are ready for grace. When we have given up all hope of ever being an acceptable human being, we may hear in our hearts the ultimate reassurance, we are accepted, accepted by grace. So, that's the beginning of our healing. And then he has a chapter entitled, Singing Amazing Grace Without Feeling Like a Wretch. <laughs> that, that is uh, chapter 15. And again, I want to read some portions from this particular section. <clears throat> You have, I'm sure, caught my sense of difference between being deserving and being worthy. Think of the difference this way. If I deserve some good thing that comes my way, it is because I did something to earn it. If I am worthy, it is because I am somebody of enormous value. And then he gives this historical illustration. On Palm Sunday morning, April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee put on his finest dress uniform, mounted Traveler his horse, and rode away from his tired and tattered troops to Appomattox, where he would surrender his beaten army to General Ulysses S. Grant. As Lee rode to meet his conqueror, he fully expected that his men would be herded like cattle into railroad cars and taken to a Union prison, and that he, as their general, would be tried and executed as a disgraced traitor. In the tidy living room of the home where the vanquished and the victor met, Lee asked Grant what his terms of surrender were to be. Grant told Lee that his men were free to take their horses with them and go back to their little farms, and that Lee, too, was free to go home and create a new life. Lee offered Grant his sword. Grant refused it. Lee heaved a sigh. He came expecting to be humiliated and he left with dignity and honor. As he watched General Lee mount Traveler and ride back to his troops, Grant took off his hat. Rather emotional. Grant took off his hat and saluted his defeated enemy. It was a gracious grace, and it deeply affected the defeated general as long as he lived. 
Lee allowed no critical word of Grant to be spoken ever in his presence. It's a great word, great story on this day. I didn't think about that, that we were going to be thinking about veterans and so on. So grace, graciously given, honors our worth and overlooks our undeserving. I have certain qualities that I share with my fellow human beings. Think about, or things about all of us that our Creator prizes. I also have my special ember glowing inside me, and, that, and now and then my ember is fanned into a flame colored with my own special glory. My shared humanity and my unique flame make me, I believe, a creature worthy to be accepted by the grace of God. Um, I think that's enough from that chapter. And now from chapter 16, titled Places to Find Traces of Grace. Okay? Places to Find Traces of Grace. And he lists those. Those are also on the golden rod sheet that I gave you last week. And um, I want to... uh, I want to read again some sections from this because, again, he tells some wonderful stories. If you wonder where God's grace can be found, this is his first uh, place to find grace. If you wonder where God's grace can be found, find yourself a critical friend. A friend who wants you to be as good a person as you can be. A friend who dares to confront your flaws and failures and then accepts the whole of you in grace. Secondly, another place to find a trace of grace is in grace-tipped memories. I once again call to my, I call in my mother as a witness She was loyal to her shame to the very end. You remember that he is described as mother's shame in a variety of ways in this book. But a pure heart can set a twist of grace even on the lip of shame. Oddly enough, grace can filter through memories of a shame-riddled parent. My mother fed it to me in small bites, mostly nights, She was away during the day, except on Mondays and Tuesdays. On Mondays, she stayed home to wash four or five families' worth of clothes in an uncooperative secondhand Maytag, the old kind, with a ringer that you fed the clothes through before you put them in a tub of hot rinse water. How many of you remember those days? (laughs) A few of you. Okay. I went down to the basement when I came home from school. Her dress was soaking wet. Her hair, unstrung by steam, dangled over her forehead. Her face was red, her back ached, and now and then when she wasn't looking, she would get her hand caught in the ringer and gave out a whoop of pain. All the while, 
She kept a corner of her eye on the brass tub of water steaming alongside a black pot of brown beans on a coal-burning stove. Monday did not feel to me like a grace day. On Tuesdays, when I came home from school at noon, my mother was in the kitchen ironing the clothes she washed on Monday. She knew what she was doing in front of an ironing board, and she addressed it with aggressive confidence. A smoothly ironed shirt collar was her one pride in life. She would press sweet starch into one crumbled piece of cotton or linen after another. Wearing a dry cotton floral print house dress under a plain gray apron with her hair combed back in a bundle, she made me glad it was Tuesday instead of Monday. When I came home, she sat down beside me and we ate lunch together and she asked me how things had gone for me at school that morning. Tuesday was a grace day and it was a very lovely day. He's talking now about grace-tipped memories. My mother believed in holidays. They were all grace days. On the morning of Memorial Day, we walked a few miles, notice, walked a few miles, together to Oakwood Cemetery, planted a little row of pansies, and stood for a while alongside my father's unmarked grave. On the morning of the 4th of July, she packed a basket full with bologna and peanut butter sandwiches, a bunch of bananas, two jars of lemonade, along with some square pieces of yellow cake. She traipsed with the five of us kids along the side of Getty Street, a busy road that had no sidewalk, pestering us to stay on the dirt apron out of harm's way until we got to the terminal of a streetcar line where we boarded a car for a day at two separate beaches, one at the Big Lake, Lake Michigan, to watch a balloon ascension, and when evening came, the other at a small lake to watch fireworks that to me were a divine effulgence. Then we loaded ourselves on the street guard again, and rode back to Marquette and Getty. On Christmas morning, there was a spindly green tree in the living room that my mother went out to fetch on Christmas Eve at a giveaway price a minute before the lot closed down. She made the tree glorious with glistening tinsel and a ribbon of red paper after we had all gone to bed. She stacked presents for all of us underneath it, mostly underwear and socks. But in the good years, a doll, too, or a ball, or a puzzle. And once a mechanical marvel of a metal airplane with a high red wing and a propeller that was driven by a rubber band attached to the spindle that connected to it with its front wheels so that the propeller went around when I wheeled the airplane along the floor. And always there were black stockings full of navel oranges with thick peelings, balls of popcorn, and hard Christmas candy. Oh, my Lord, my Lord, how she did grace our holidays. Once I sat under a mulberry tree with some bigger kids and tried to smoke some cigarette butts that they had picked up along the curb. But I became awfully dizzy and I, sweet, and I, I sneaked home sick. It was a Tuesday. So my mother was there to take me in, which she did. And when she smelled what I had been up to, she said that any boy who got that sick from smoking needed an ice cream cone to calm down his stomach. <laughs> she gave my older brother a nickel 
and shooed him off to the drugstore to buy me a cone. A year after I finished high school with anything but luster and afraid that I lacked intelligence enough to succeed in college, I decided my, to follow my longing for learning and maybe even a call to the ministry at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, where they took in candidates of lesser promise. The morning I left home, my mother walked with me the two miles it took to get downtown, where I caught a Greyhound bus for Chicago. She waited alongside until the bus backed out of the parking stall, and I saw tears flowing down her cheeks while she waved goodbye to me. My mother lived out her days in the shaky house my father had almost finished making for her with his own unskilled hands after working hours before he died at age 31. Inner city blight seeped into her neighborhood during the years after we kids had left, but she stayed there. She judged no one, indulged everyone, got to be known as the candy lady because she always had some candy for the kids and in general worked a neighbor's magic with her grace. She died a week after I saw her last. That's the time she told me what a great sinner she had been. We planned a modest little funeral for her, just the family and a few friends about what we expected to come to say goodbye to an unknown widow who lived alone in a neighborhood where nobody she used to know lived anymore. However, more people than we knew had tasted her grace, and they came. White people, black people, neighbors of the time of decay and neighbors of the better days. Church people and people who never went to church, very poor people and people who were well off. Children and ancients of days and workers and bosses from the foundry whose offices she last kept clean. They came, a swarm of them. And they said they came because my mother had brought some lightness into their heavy lives. Enough, I think, to establish the mystery that grace can make even shame its servants. Traces of grace can be found then in a critical friend, in grace-tipped memories. Grace can be found in so many other ways in our lives, it seems to me as well. When there are grace-based churches, for example, who dispense grace. And sometimes, he says, a person finds grace not in church, but in our own internal tomb. And he talks about the dark night of the soul, that some of us know what it means to go through that, that time when we feel like no one could possibly care for us or love us. And grace is seen not in traces, he says, but rather in the full face of the story of Jesus. Where do I see the face of Jesus? Today in my world, in the places I walk, among the people I know, 
Where do I see traces of his grace? I have found traces of grace in the faces of my friends, in the face of my mother, and in the faces of a community whose sole reason for existence is to convey grace to shamed people. Well, that's a lot of reading. That's a lot of material. But as I've said many times during this time, it's those kinds of stories that I believe every person in this room has. And that's why for most of us who are at the age now in life where we should be telling some of those stories to the next generation, you ought to be doing it now. Don't hesitate to tell your story of how grace has shaped your life and how those stories become stories of grace then in the lives of children and neighbors and grandchildren and people that all of us know and care about. Well, now I'd like to um, spend the remaining time talking about some thoughts having to do with grace is costly. That's our theme for today. And just by the way, on the bottom of today's sheet and outline, you will find those places to find traces of grace. A critical friend, grace tip memories, graces or churches that do not dispense cheap grace, one's own internal tomb, that is the dark night of the soul, and in the full measure of, or in the full face of, of Jesus. Our scripture then for this morning, anything that anybody want to say a moment? Anybody have a question or a thought about anything you've heard this morning way over here? Wait a minute, we need to pick up this, the question. Just thinking as you begin this, uh, some years ago I heard a visiting Methodist pastor from Washington say, and I, I learned later, I don't think it was original, but he said, grace is free, but it isn't cheap. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we'll be talking about uh, cheap grace in just a few moments as well. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. The passage of Scripture for this morning, then, is taken from Galatians chapter 4 and just a few verses. And uh, I think they're rather familiar verses, but I want to read them to you. Galatians 4 at verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons or children of God. Because you are children of God, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son... God has also made you an heir, an heir 
of all of the riches of God's grace. I've always liked that passage. There are two places in the book, uh, in the New Testament, uh, there's maybe more, but there's two places in the New Testament that I particularly appreciate where the Apostle Paul uses the word Abba, Father, that we have the privilege of being, uh, being able to call God our Father. And the word there, Abba, is an interesting and very intimate word. In today's vernacular, we would say, Daddy. It would be the kind of connection that a child would feel with his earthly father. Enough to be able to say, Daddy, I love you, that kind of thing. And I think many of you, if you ever sat in my class uh, when I was here as your pastor, um, I would use the illustration many, many times when I was in seminary we had a visiting Old Testament professor uh, for a, a semester. His name was James Meilenberg. He was considered to be a very liberal Old Testament scholar at that time. But I think I learned uh, far more from him than I learned from some other people in my life. But I'll never forget the time. And he, he, was, he was quite elderly at the time. I think he must have been in his... Uh, mid-70s or late 70s when he came to, uh, to, to teach that, uh, that semester. And I'll never forget the time when he talked about the passage in Romans and this passage in Galatians where um, Paul talks about being able to call God Abba, Father. He said, um, how, do, how do children first express themselves? Oftentimes, when a child is beginning to make sounds, they'll say, ah, ba, 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 ba. I thought, what a profound thing that children <laughs> are able to use the word Abba <laughs> when they're learning to grow and change and develop. And you and I are called upon also to recognize that grace, God's grace, has allowed us to say, Abba, 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 Father, my Father. Now, the question then is about cost. Grace is costly. And surely, if you've uh, read today's headline in the Chicago Tribune, if you've read other headlines and all the other newspapers today, probably, the question is, after this election, what is going to happen to the cost of living and our economy? And Wall Street took a dive yesterday and job creation. Um, when I was uh, riding over here, even uh, the broadcast said that probably... Uh, right now, during this next period of time, uh, the end of this fiscal year and the beginning of next year, we will see over 2 million jobs lost. Um, so all of that stuff is so much a part of what has been happening and what we've talked about in the last uh, period of time having to do with our election. But... I think it's a far deeper question when we talk about the cost of 
being able to experience the grace of God. And if I were to ask you a practical question this morning, what is Christmas costing you this year? Um, there are some in our culture who would say, well, I've already got a lot of unpaid bills, or I put all my stuff on layaway at Kmart, or uh, Christmas is just one big headache because we're not able to function very well to these uh, days with our limited paychecks or whatever. Or for some people, Christmas and the cost of Christmas is not so much monetary as it is the painful memories that we sometimes experience. But my friends, the truth of this morning and the truth I want you to have deeply put into your mind and into your experience is that Christmas cost God his son. Christmas cost God his son. And yes, I know that's kind of hard for us to understand. It's, it's, a, it's a truth that is difficult to put our arms around and to even put it in proper perspective in this day and age in which we live. After all, for most of us, we want Christmas to uh, be a cheerful and celebrative time. We don't want to think about smelly shepherds and babies in mangers and no room in the end. We don't want to really think about Mary and what it cost her, that she was pregnant but not married. She was the talk of the town, a shame that she must have experienced to be able to be the vessel that God used to bring life into this world. And the backroom jokes and the slurs about Joseph's character as he walked through his town every day. And we would just as soon plug our ears to the terrible wailing in Bethlehem when crazy Herod decreed that all male children two years of age and under were to be slaughtered. And last week when we talked about the picture of old Simeon cradling the baby in his arms and saying, God, now let your servant depart in peace, we didn't read the part where Simeon responds also to Mary by saying, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. And when John describes the coming of Christ into the world, he writes in the first chapter, Although he, that is Christ, made the world, the world did not recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. Only a few would welcome and receive him. None of us, none of us, will ever be able to comprehend what it cost God to send his only son into the world. And my friends, if the grace that we have been talking about in recent weeks and the grace that we've been hearing described through Dr. Smeads and our own experience of it, if God's grace is God's gift to us and it is free and if it requires only our acceptance of it, our receiving of it, then we had better know that it was very costly to someone, namely God himself. 
And that's why this passage in Galatians, it seems to me, is such a profound passage. Because Paul says that at just the right time, when all of the events of world history came together in such a way, at, right, at, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could redeem those who were under the law. And as a result, we are no longer slaves. We are no longer burdened, says Paul, with our sin, with our disappointment before God, with our shame and our guilt. But rather, we are now heirs, heirs of the grace of God. And when Christ came down to earth, we believe that he came down all the way. That is, he experienced everything that you and I experience. Paul says in the second letter or the second chapter of the book of Philippians, Jesus laid aside his mighty power and his mighty glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like them. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as to actually die a criminal's death on a cross. God's grace is never cheap, but very costly. And probably the person who has um, written about costly grace um, is a person by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know that name. Bon Bonhoeffer was one of the lone voices in Germany, uh, one of the lone voices of the church when Hitler was destroying Jews and when Hitler was in power and doing all the things that we've learned about now in later years. Bonhoeffer spoke out against it. He was in prison before trying to undermine not only, but to kill Hitler himself, he and other associates. And um, it was while he was in prison that he wrote his famous book known as the Letters uh, from Prison by Bonhoeffer. If you've never read the book, you owe it to yourself to do so. And if you've never read The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, you owe it to yourself to do so. This uh, that you have on your tables in the pink sheet, I believe, is from his first chapter on, uh, fr from, from The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to read this. Uh, this is about costly grace. And these are excerpts from his first chapter in this book. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Now, I have to keep in mind that this was written uh, during the, the, the 40s, uh, early 50s. I think the cost of discipleship was written uh, in the 50s. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market 
like cheap jacks wears. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. The church which holds the correct doctrine of grace has a part in that grace. It's such a church, in such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Talked about that a little bit this last week or the week before when we talked about the fact that uh, sin is not a popular concept today. And we very rarely talk about the fact that God is a just, righteous God. He cannot, will not tolerate uh, that kind of, of disobedience, that kind of something that separates us from God. That's why he sent his son. Sin is not about, I told a lie today. Sin is not going into the confessional and saying, uh, uh, you know, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And then you have to make up a few sins that maybe you, you, you did over the weeks. That's, that's, that's cheap grace, my friends. And I leave there and I have to say Hail Marys or I have to get on my knees or as Luther had to do, he had to climb the steps he fell in order to make himself right before God. His knees would be bloody and, and all of that after, after feeling like he was not able to come before God. That's cheap grace. Grace that the church dispenses many times is, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to offend anybody. So let's say that uh, Mary and Susie or Mary and John have a, have a son or daughter someplace. They're, they live out in California and and the children, uh, the, 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 they have children, and now they have a, now they have a grandchild. And uh, the, the, the son and daughter want to have that grandchild baptized, and they want to have that baptized uh, child brought here back to Christ church. And so, well, we've got to be nice to Mary and John. After all, they're members of the, of the church. But the, the children could care less about the church. They never attend. They never go. They don't want, but they want their child baptized. I'm sorry, my friends, that's dispensing cheap grace. That's cheap grace. We don't just do it because people are nice. People are good. People give $5,000 to the church. That's what was happening during the time of the Reformation. When Luther said there's something wrong here. We live by faith, justified by faith. Not by all the ritual, not by all of the stuff that the church was corruptly selling at that time. 
And the church is not very different today. I'm not just criticizing something that happened before. The church isn't very different today. We want the church to meet our needs. We want the church to dispense grace to me so that I feel good. When we come to church on Sunday morning, we should feel bad when we leave. Badly enough to say, how is my life going to be different as a result of my being in this place today? Cheap grace is easy to dispense in the culture in which we live. And we want the church to meet my little individual need. Cheap grace means justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it were, as it was before. All for sin could not atone, says the hymn. The world goes on in the same old way, and we are still sinners, even in the best life, as Luther said. Well then, let the Christians live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. And for the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ in which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it, follows, it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, says the scripture. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God.